everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Manhattan DA candidate Dan Court back to discuss more about his race. Um, It's an interesting race and we're coming in on, is it now less than 90 days? It is. And with uh, absentee ballots and early voting, uh, even less. So uh, we're really looking right after Memorial Day, uh, people will be able to start voting. Um, And this is really um, an historic election. I I didn't realize. So over the last 80 years, there have really been only three people that have been Manhattan DAs. Um, I think it was. um, Do uh, then uh, Thomas Dewey, and um, then uh, Hogan, then I forget the gentleman in between, uh, and then Morgenthau, of course, for 30-some-odd years, and Cy Vance. So um, I think in total four, but it may um, my history may be a little off, but it has not been a lot of people representing New York County over the last 70 years in this office. So um, this week, uh, you released uh, your public safety plan, and in your press release, one of your comments was, we do not have to choose between a fairer and a safer city, which I think is really kind of a, a key point in kind of the criminal justice reform movement that we've created this false dichotomy that people have bought into the notion that uh, if we're going to reform the system, that means we're going to become less safe. Can you kind of discuss that? Yes, uh, the, the question uh, illuminates the point. Um, and it's really the point of more prosecutions uh, neither makes us safer nor makes us a fair, more uh, equitable uh, city. Um, and that fits uh, generally with the vision of reallocation of resources in the office to focusing on actual criminal conduct that affects Manhattanites, uh, hopefully my constituents, rather than uh, the targeting mostly of communities of color on low level offenses that really provide no public safety benefit. And my work in Albany is illustrative of that point. So I'm gonna go through kind of uh, plank by plank of your plan and, and, and have you kind of elaborate and respond. Uh, So we have uh, justice for sexual abuse and assault survivors. Yeah, Um, I'm proud of uh, proud that I was the first candidate in this race. Um, 
13, 14 months ago to put out a nine point plan detailing how I would um, reform the sex crimes unit within uh, the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, the names are known to most people, Epstein, Weinstein, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, um, but it's the everyday uh, people who've walked into one Hogan place and walked out without justice. And I think the reforms need to be broad um, and expansive. And I've let set forth in a nine point plan, personally uh, re-interviewing each and every uh, assistant district attorney bureau chief or assistant bureau chief within the office, multiple planks of that plan on reform and transparency. And that includes providing information that's not even required by FOIL or law and providing that in city council oversight hearing. So it's a matter of public record, not just within a portal of my office. And then looking at novel ways to use the law um, in, in terms of going after large scale institutions. And by example, um, in the case of um, uh, Marissa Hochstetter and Dr. Hayden and so many other of the survivor turn advocates, there was information from the civil suit that uh, Columbia University uh, was aware of uh, Dr. Hayden's conduct uh, for years. And uh, that was not disclosed to patients and he was allowed to go uh, and continue that activity. And I would take steps through the existing law to hold those large scale institutions accountable and also move to a merit-based prosecution system, which really uh, essentially says uh, where I believe uh, a violent act, nine times out of 10 against women have been, uh, has occurred in Manhattan that will let a jury decide and that will take this case to the jury. And that's not an approach uh, Mr. Vance has employed over the last 11 years. So let's take, you know, the example of Epstein, since it's such a high profile case and so obviously, you know, uh, was done wrongly. Uh, how do you do that differently from your predecessor? Well, the, the Jeffrey Epstein's case was uh, uh, an anomaly in many, many ways. Um, typically, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office rarely, if ever, asked for a downgrade of anyone's sex offender status. Um, it is a puzzlement to me and many other Manhattanites uh, to this very day, why the Manhattan District Attorney's Office chose that case in particular to seek a downgrade of Jeffrey Epstein's sex offender status. Um, I will just say that the explanations provided by Mr. Vance's spokesperson have been unconvincing to me and to many others um, that it was, uh, basically legal error, uh, that there was a misinterpretation of the sex offender statutes. Uh, I am not convinced. Um, I, I, I try not, never to judge anybody else's motives. I will just say um, their explanation is not believable. Um, and uh, it goes to the dysfunction of, of uh, individual attorneys within the office, but more to his failure in management and applying specific standards. Uh, in that case, and likely in other similar type cases. So, I mean, I guess it's easy in, in, in hindsight to say, yeah, this was mishandled. Um, but, you know, if you're in the moment, how do you guard against that? Well, it, it's really a singular standard of justice where the wealthy and well-connected don't receive privileges that anybody else walking through the Manhattan District Attorney's Office or Manhattan Criminal Court receive. Um, I, I think it's fairly clear that Jeffrey Epstein received uh, some sort of extra or special status. 
um, that the average individual coming up for a sexual sex offender evaluation or reevaluation re hearing would never have received. And that's ultimately uh, what I'm trying to reform in this office, uh, that there clearly are two tracks of justice, one for the wealthy and the well-connected and one for everybody else. And, and we understand that and we know that. Um, and it's easy to say, You'll, I'll do something different. But I think you see from my track record in the legislature about the things I fought for, the things I've passed, and my experience in the courtroom, that I'm best suited amongst the eight candidates to bring about that single standard of justice that applies equally, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein or anybody else who walks in for a sex offender status hearing. Um, and then your next point is getting guns off our streets. This is a, a significant problem in the rise of uh, gun violence in Manhattan, um, something that I understand from being in the community is specifically working uh, with tenant and residents associated where these communities have been dealing with gun violence for a long, long time. In the beginning, it's good things an attorney can do. One, um, more effective by programs that are done by credible messengers um, within the community rather than assistant district attorneys. Take the law enforcement a, a step back and out of some of the buyback programs. Uh, and this follow up on many of the things I've done in the legislature uh, on uh, restricting gun, uh, gun owner, restricting gun control, making it easier for those with mental health problems to uh, have hearings in which to uh, remove their guns from them as well as working with other like-minded assist uh, district attorneys uh, in counties in the mid-Atlantic area and even in the South uh, to create a registry and to try our best significantly look at the other side of things. Um, I think work communities like the West Harlem Initiative uh, that's being set forth by the Chicken Murphy Foundation, take a 10 block radius, provide wraparound services, hire from the community, set forth the restorative justice approach, especially in areas where there's high levels of violent conduct, including gun related incidents. And uh, it, it can't all be about prosecution because Vance um, essentially has a rule that almost everybody gets prosecuted and that hasn't made us any safer. We have to take a new approach and that would include many of the things I've just talked about. And then uh, standing up to hate and bigotry. Certainly so. Um, you know, I have, as growing up uh, as I did in Washington Heights in a diverse neighborhood before we used the word diverse to call neighborhoods that, uh, I had some personal experience with this and uh, in physical assaults or threats uh, because of my religion and who I was. So I understand this from a personal level. And I think the next district attorney has to, has to really focus on this issue. And we do that in a multitude of ways, but I, I need to talk about the rise in uh, hate attacks against our, our Asian American community, especially, it's not just in Chinatown, but throughout Manhattan uh, against Asian Americans, our neighbors uh, who are under attack. And to take that very seriously. Um, and I think I have the existing tools within the penal law uh, through the misdemeanor or felony assault to hold people accountable. But I think it's really about education and finding ways through restorative justice programs that already do exist uh, to better educate our young people on the great diversity of our neighborhoods, that Manhattan is this melting pot, 
that respect of others who may not talk the same language as you do, who may not look like you, um, is what really is going to uh, drive down the numbers in in uh, in a meaningful way. But ultimately, this is also about public safety. No individual, family, or community should or would ever feel unsafe, which is why I'm addressing hate crimes as an important aspect of my public safety plan. And do you have data on uh, the rise of anti-Asian attacks in Manhattan? Um, not specific to Manhattan, but uh, this is something I follow very closely and work with on the legislature. And uh, maybe it's a, a bit much too much detail, but the state of New York on, under its violent crime reporting indexing provides this data to the FBI for matching funds and other purposes. So this data is available and we've seen an increase in hate attacks, hate crime over the last several years. This is not a new phenomenon. And this has happened against uh, Jewish, uh, our Jewish communities, uh, our African-American communities, but there's been a significant rise also more recently against Asian Americans. So this is not something new to me, something I followed in the legislature and, and something that people should understand has been on the rise for several years. Um, this is not a new phenomenon, but it is a new phenomenon in terms of the rise in Manhattan specifically of hate attacks or attacks based upon hate against our Asian American community. Um, but hate is not something new, unfortunately, to the state of New York or the city of New York or Manhattan. And that's something I've been tracking and following and thinking about for years um, from the legislature. Um, and then you have uh, prosecuting violent and economic crime. Um, why are you putting those two categories together? I'm curious about. Well, it, it fit in one sentence. Um, uh, <laughs> um, um, certainly, uh, <laughs> that's a grammar issue, but uh, I'll take them both in separate parts uh, because um, obviously it's the job of a district attorney um, to prosecute where it is justified, where the right outcome for 1.6 million Manhattanites is to hold somebody accountable. And I'm not talking about longer jail sentences um, because I think I've spoken very clearly in this campaign that expanded incarceration is something I disagree with wholeheartedly and would have sentencing reform and do not believe in the trial penalty, but I do believe in accountability um, for, on most occasions where people engage in violent conduct out on the streets or anywhere else in Manhattan. And that includes transparency and holding people accountable in a court of law. What that doesn't mean is expansive and longer jail sentences that are necessary. Um, because I've seen from my own experiences doing parole hearings in Rikers Island or on the Corrections Committee in the legislature, how little rehabilitation actually takes place in our state correctional facilities. Then um, secondly, uh, in terms of economic or so-called white collar crime, um, I do not think there's been the focus uh, by the Vance administration on these. And with my reallocation of resources away from low level crimes, um, uh, to the things I've talked about on my declination of prosecution list, I will have the ample resources to address some of these white collar crimes um, as well as cyber crimes. And I'm proud that in my campaign, I, uh, I'm the only candidate putting out a more detailed plan about addressing uh, cyber related crimes, confidence scams, uh, credit card scams that prey upon the elderly and our immigrant community in creating the first in the nation cybersecurity uh, criminal court or part 
Um, and uh, I think that's necessary to address an area of the law which requires education to judges and brings in non-judicial actors into the courtroom. That's the reason for creating a specialized part. And that's what I would do with relating to cybersecurity, those type of credit card and phone scams that are so prevalent uh, among, uh, and preyed upon our elderly in Manhattan. Now, I saw this tweet this morning, uh, which was taking uh, one of your quote unquote establishment uh, opponents uh, to task for taking so much money from Wall Street and then, um, you know, questioning how uh, she could enforce uh, white collar uh, crime laws against Wall Street when they're bankrolling her campaign. Uh, I don't know if you want to address that or not, but I, I found that interesting. I've, I, I've been very specific in the legislature about where I think the conflict lies, and that's with criminal defense attorneys who practice in New York County. And I wrote legislation that would essentially limit the ability of criminal defense attorneys on business database list. So uh, I haven't been able to pass that legislation. Um, but I think that's the rule I said I would live by in my race for district attorney, because that eliminates the conflict that I think uh, Mr. Vance got into some trouble with with uh, the uh, with the Trump situation. So um, I can only speak affirmatively to what I would do. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll defer to Ms. Weinstein to uh, uh, defend her fundraising practices uh, uh, on her own time. Um, and then another plank is protecting workers. Yes, um, this is significant and wage theft will be an important part of what I will accomplish as district attorney. And this is really important about putting the resources effort into, and I think we need to look historically of why it's so critical that the Manhattan and a little historical in 20, then our commissioner, but there were gaps in their approach. Uh, two specifically, one that subcontract, and as we know, many construction jobs, contractor, it's the sub often are engaged in the direct violation of our wage laws. So the system set up by the city, in and of itself, uh, the amount uh, this was fifteen when there was could look to expanded resources with budget limitations going forward. I'm not convinced that there'll be enough investment resources put in a level. The long story short is the vacuum that exists is one that I, as Manhattan District Attorney, steals from our all the time where there's construction taking place. So this is something that I will sufficiently resource take seriously and it won't always be the large scale cases it'll be two three four thousand uh, dollars because you identify those sort of cases and they're part of a larger conspiracy type case um, and i think this is something critical and something i'll address and part of how i will reallocate resources from areas where i don't think we need uh that heavy footprint of the da's office to an area where i think we need more resources and then the last plank is uh, prosecuting cybercrime. Yes, I touched upon it a little uh, in an earlier answer. Um, I think this is something uh, that I uh, that I hope to be groundbreaking in a precedent setting across the country in really dealing with 
cyber-related crime in a different way. Um, you talk to the store owner, the bodega owner, the deli owner, uh, he or she, uh, often uh, immigrant workforces, put all their capital into their store. And when they get $5,000 stolen from them in one of these confidence scams or credit card scams or phone scams, this is the ability to continue to pay their rent, uh, to put food on the table, to continue to run their local store as opposed to shutting down or selling. Um, so I take this very seriously. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood in Washington Heights uh, where I knew the store owners and, and uh, I knew that the margins by which they succeeded or failed are so narrow. So I understand if they had $5,000 stolen from them, um, those are the cases I wanna focus on and creating a specific cybersecurity part that can address these matters, um, not just ferreting them out to the litigation or trial bureau parts, dealing with them specifically, bringing in non-judicial actors into that part ill-equipped to handle these type of cases. Uh, I'll pay close personal attention to these, these cases and address them differently than how Mr. Vance has over the You kind of froze at the end there. That was probably the best part, but I just say, <laughs> I, I will handle these differently in a, in a new manner than uh, how it's been handled. And, and I'm, I'm proud of the, the program I put forth. And I think it's a, a marked distinction between myself and some of the other candidates in this race. Who have not talked about these issues. So in our remaining time, I want to kind of um, move and, and talk about three issues that uh, I find really uh, important, uh, uh, kind of facing New York, but also, um, you know, the rest of the world, uh, the rest of the U.S. world anyway. Um, you know, one of the issues that I, I find so confounding is kind of the legacy of stop and frisk, um, which I understand has been halted, but not halted. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, if you look at the old data uh, on stop and frisk, you know, it's basically police targeting people of color um, uh, to pull them over and and use a pretext to basically harass them, uh, search them, uh, and and usually what happens is they don't find anything, and so you're basically inconveniencing somebody based on no reason other than they look kind of suspicious to you, um, and it just breeds this distrust between. Uh, people of color and uh, the uh, uh, and the police. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a very timely question. Um, so, last Sunday, I was knocking on doors and canvassing, as as, I, as myself and my team uh, do in this campaign, because I believe in talking to voters directly, one person at a time, one vote at a time. So, I was in a building on Roosevelt Island, um, where I had run for city council 16 years ago, and I was canvassing, talking to people about this race. And one gentleman, and he tweeted about it, so it's a matter of, you can check my twi Twitter feed. Um, he said, you know, what about stop and frisk? And what about broken windows policing? You know, what are your feelings about that? And I started to talk about the, the DOI, the Department of Investigations report from 2015 and the technical matter and, and the aspects of it. Um, and I've spoken on the assembly floor about these very specific issues how I don't believe in stop and frisk, how there's no connection between 
in stopping somebody from a fair evasion and thinking you're going to prevent a homicide 20 years later, that there's no data to suggest that there's any correlation to suggest that broken windows has actually made works or has made us safer. Um, and that I would reject that notion as a district attorney because Les has talked about the district attorney's role as a pass-through of stop and frisk, that everything the NYPD arrests that just gets into a courtroom and is not stopped at the early case assessment bureau, how suppression hearings don't work to dismiss this stuff. I mean, Mr. Vance, unfortunately, has essentially been a pass-through to whatever the NYPD has given him in most respects. And that is the extension of broken windows policing into the courtroom. And I reject that notion. And it was, it was good to have that argument with that gentleman who will ultimately not end up voting for me. But um, I believe in that very passionately. And you could look at my work in the legislature on so-called gravity knives, which was the predicate of stop and frisk. It took me seven years to decriminalize a tool of stop and frisk, and one of the main tools. And because of my work, I think it's estimated by legal aid that 3,800 to 4,000 people will never see the inside of a police precinct or a courtroom, or could be nev never use any of these so-called nonsense or predicate stops as a, as a means of a bump up to a felony and possible jail time. So it's a dividing line for me in this race. It's the theory upon which I think has done much damage in communities like the one I grew up in in Washington Heights, uh, as is applied disproportionately, not in districts like mine on the east side of Manhattan, but in other districts like Washington Heights that I spoke about. And I had a personal experience talking to a voter about it uh, less than a week ago. Um, and my feelings are, are very clear on this and have been for the better part of the last half decade, both from the, the floor of the legislature, in the courtroom representing people who have been targeted by these sort of low level summonses or arrests. And, and uh, that's why I have a expansive list of crimes I will decline to prosecute uh, when I become the district attorney. So uh, the second thing I wanna ask you about is obviously police reform. Uh, we've been monitoring the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, covering that pretty closely. Uh, we've also followed along with some of the reports that have come out of New York on uh, the treatment of protesters and uh, uh, the irony, I think, of uh, the police abusing people that are protesting police abuse, um, which they don't seem to quite get that irony. Um, but uh, you know, from a from a DA's perspective, uh, you know, how do you address police reform? Well, let let's start with the basics. Police accountability is public safety. Um, and the absence of holding officers accountable who uh, file false police reports uh, or who use excessive force is the absence of public safety. Um, and so I would certainly hold police officers accountable, prosecute them where appropriate, where they engage in excessive force. One, exa one example is Officer Garcia on May 9th on East 9th Street, where he put his knee and neck into the neck of Donnie Wright. Um, the fact that that officer resigned should not immunize him from prosecution for using excessive force. And that's one example where I would prosecute, but it has to go well beyond that. Um, it's identifying officers who have a history of misconduct. And if you look at my record in the legislature, um, nobody has my record of actually achieving those reforms uh, of holding officers accountable. And that includes um, my own legislation uh, before the police secrecy laws were repealed to make sure dashboard cam and body cam footage was not 
was not held up to police, was not encompassed within police secrecy laws, which I worked on with then public advocate Tish James and my leadership on repealing 50A, one of the worst secrecy laws um, in the state and certainly amongst the country dating back to 1976 in New York. Um, so I have a long record on police accountability um, because our hopes are by identifying officers who have a record of misconduct that we never get to the place where is still on the streets, able to engage in that level of violence that can uh, take innocent people's lives. Um, and, and that's ultimately what the solution is. But as district attorney, um, I'll do a whole host of things. One, as I've said, hold the officers who engage in excessive force accountable, one standard, um, and not, not treat officers like they're a protected class of people, because they're not. Um, they should be treated just like anybody else who engages in excessive force or relies on a on a on an official report. And secondly, uh, uh, provide more in terms of discovery. Uh, do more than what Mr. Vance is doing right now in providing skeletal summaries of police officers to defense attorneys. Provide actual information and records where there's an officer engaged in misconduct. Be fair and provide that information to defense counsel, even if it hurts your case of prosecution. What would you do uh, differently in a case like Eric Garner's death, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, handling uh, prosecution? Uh, and what would you be looking for in terms of filing criminal charges in a case like that? Well, this is a case where the Garner case is a tragedy. Um, I've worked with you know, I know Gwen Carr and work with her in Albany. Um, the, the fault lines on the Garner case are on a multitude of level, but they start at grand jury proceedings. Um, as I understand it, the district attorney of Richmond County at that time only brought murder one charges, um, did not offer the full menu of potential charges that could have existed under the facts of that case. Um, and I, I think it's fairly clear why that was. Um, so misuse of the grand jury. Um, which is a very one-sided affair to begin with, where the district attorneys present, uh, they have incredible discretion to only present certain charges and certain facts is something I would change as district attorney. And I think this is part of why it's so important not to elect another prosecutor uh, to this job, because you're never gonna get that type of reform from somebody who's been part of that similar grand jury proceeding process over years. Um, it just won't happen no matter what the rhetoric of any of the five prosecutors in this race say to you. Um, that is one aspect of where the Garner case went awry. Uh, the other is what I was talking about earlier in one of my early answers. Um, Pantaleo had a long uh, history of misconduct that the public never knew about. He should not have been a police officer at the time of that tragedy on that street um, in Staten Island, and he was. Um, my work in Albany was about ending that practice. And that's what I would do as district attorney, publishing the list of police officers who, in, uh, who cannot be uh, deemed trustworthy. And then beyond that, there's some legislative fixes, both with the CCRB and changing state law uh, that will allow the city to create an entity that actually engages in meaningful oversight of the NYPD. That doesn't exist now uh, by the CCRB. It's just it's not it's not going to happen under the limitations under the charter and city law. So there has to be changes at the state level that will allow a CCRB type agency to be empowered 
to actually hold officers accountable and not allow the police commissioner just to ignore the results of the CCRB. Um, so it's a combination of things I can do as district attorney and then legislative changes. But that's why it's so important in this race to pick the right district attorney, uh, not one connected to uh, the prosecutorial system, one with the right experiences I believe I have, uh, but who doesn't have that experience as a carceral district attorney. And then my final question, which I think I have asked you every single time I've talked to you, uh, Rikers Island. Um, you know, um, what do you do about Rikers Island? What can you do as a district attorney, actually? You change the bail laws and you change the bail laws um, in, in the way I wrote legislation to do it four years ago. Um, the, the biggest impact the next district attorney can have on closing of Rikers Island or sending less people to the tombs, um, which is an equally an equal hellhole as Rikers Island is, um, is change the bails, bail laws from a punitive model uh, to where money is uh, the singular factor to, to one where we identify those. We reduce the number of people who are in pre-trial facilities um, and we limit those only to those who pose a physical safety threat to another uh, who are an actual risk of flight, not this nebulous idea of risk of flight based upon income or their employment status and based upon a certain number of charges where there might be a rebuttable presumption uh, that they should be remanded. Um, and that's the legislation I, rose, I wrote years ago, and that'll be the guidepost on the protocols I'll put in place. But that is ultimately the thing the district attorney can actually do to reduce the number of people going to Rikers Island from Manhattan Criminal Court and be part of the solution of shutting Rikers Island down once and for all. And uh, then I'll let you uh, have your last word here. Um, you know, uh, let us know what, what you think about everything. Well, as always, I appreciate your, your insightful questions and the ability uh, on your platform to talk about these issues. Um, to me, the, the distinguishing factor between myself and the other lawyers in this race running is my record of actual decarceration, of actually doing things, um, not just as an advocate, um, which I don't deny is an important aspect of reforming our criminal legal system, but passing legislation and standing up for values of fairness and reform. And what distinguishes me in this race is I've actually done that uh, from the legislature, have the experiences of practicing civil and criminal defense attorney representing poor people in Manhattan criminal courtroom for three years. And significantly doing that and actually having to answer before voters going to community boards, speaking with voters uh, and people voicing their displeasure with the positions I take, but I still sticking to what I think is the right solution in our criminal legal system and defending that in primary election and general election year after year, even with an electorate that's not always inclined to support me on some of these issues. So for voters who want reform, who are looking for someone who they can trust, uh, there's no guesswork with me. My record 10 years in Albany and in the community demonstrates that I can be commit and I can be relied upon to actually execute on all the things we've spoken about in the last half hour. All right. Well, I want to thank you uh, for your time and uh, taking time out of your busy schedule between campaigning and uh, your legislative work. Uh, that was uh, Dan Court. Uh, he's an assembly member in, in New York. And he's running for Manhattan DA in uh, really a historic race. What are there, nine candidates or is it eight? 
uh, it started out with nine. Now, uh, now it's eight of us running in uh, no ranked choice voting. So, yeah. Um, so uh, it's uh, it, it's a free for all, um, and and they'll be starting to vote uh, right after Memorial Day. So uh, this is uh, a race that we'll be watching very closely as we have uh, already for some time. Uh, and, and thanks again for coming out, Dan. Thanks for having me. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.